Hi, I'm your host, Lillian Yang. And I'm your host, Fakri Shafai, and you are listening to Food Nonfiction. First, I'd like to say an early happy Mother's Day. Hi, Mom! Don't forget Mother's Day this Sunday, May 10th. Love you, Mom! This episode is on the world's biggest food fight. Hi there, my name is Ryan James Schilling and I'm a student in the UK. In 2008, I joined Charo School in the northeast of England where I experienced my very first and hopefully last food fight. Ryan went to Jaro School, located in a small town of the same name, Jaro, with a population of just over 27,000 people. The students are between the ages of 11 and 16. So one day, while I was in the cafeteria and everyone is chatting away, I heard the sound of food hitting a wall. Like a meerkat, I lifted my head up straight away to see what was going on and realized that someone had tried to throw a spoonful of mashed potato, the most funny-to-throw food, at someone, and they missed. I started to watch a small food fight unfold as the other guy threw some potatoes straight back at him. And then someone else joined. And then someone else threw a sausage at another table. The other table retaliated with empty juice bottles, you know, the 500 milliliter, 17 ounce kind, only for the table that started it all to throw full juice bottles straight back at there. I mean, these bottles are more than three times as heavy as a baseball and are flying through the air at about 40 miles per hour. This is when the small food fight turned into a serious food riot. Ryan's school was not the most reputable school at the time when he first enrolled. When Ryan attended Jaro, it hadn't been rebuilt yet. It was an old and dilapidated building from the Victorian era. It was described as a troubled school by the BBC when the British Broadcasting Company covered a story of a near riot there in 2003. My school was not good at all in the first year. I never made eye contact with anyone older than me out of fear of being attacked. And from what Ryan told us, the town he was in was a bit rough around the edges. My neighbourhood wasn't great. It had a reputation amongst the other towns for being full of pregnant teenagers, antisocial behaviour, and a hefty flow of illegal drugs. I was never really exposed to any of that, though, as I was smart enough to make friends with people who didn't associate with those types of things. So when the food fights started at his school, it quickly escalated. It went from throwing mashed potatoes to throwing bottles. We try and leave the cafeteria, but we realize that half the people throwing the bottles are blocking the exit. Trapped, we press our backs against the wall and put our hands in front of our faces, peeking out to the carnage that was happening in front of us. Since we were the youngest and thus the easiest targets, we were all trying to dodge the bottles. Some student I'd never met before who was probably 16 at the time, decided to grab me and use me as a human shield. I thought, there is no way I'm taking a bottle for you. I elbowed him in the stomach and pushed him in front of me, and before he could turn around to hit me, bottle hit him square in the face. He fell straight down on the floor, and I quickly dragged him behind the half wall so that he wouldn't get hit again. Ryan was a good kid. He stayed away from the troublemakers at his school, and he didn't hold a grudge. When this older kid used him as a human shield, he still helped the older boy to safety. At this point, I thought, 
This ride isn't going to end anytime soon. I need to get out of here. I squeezed my way through the people blocking the exit to get into the corridor, only to find that the ride had spread into the rest of the school. Students chanting, Let's go quacking mental, echoed throughout the school. I think they were trying to go outside, but for some reason the staff decided to lock the doors. Bad move. Fortunately, Ryan and some of the other smaller kids found a storage room to hide in, and there was a silver lining to all of this madness. He made friends. We hid in this room until it all died down. I will say that making friends in the storage room was fun, as before that I didn't really have the chance to make any friends. The fire alarm went off and nobody even thought about leaving, since we knew someone had just set it off for fun. We were in this room for 30 minutes, whispering to each other and becoming friends. So Ryan went back to school the next day. And what he saw was a lot of smashed windows, things broken, there were reports of kids with broken bones and concussions. The next day, I turned up to school to see the extent of the damage. It was insane. I saw dozens of smashed windows, destroyed roofs, graffiti. After that, the staff were never really spoken about it. How do you feel the teachers handled the food fight? During the food fight, the teachers responded pretty poorly. Locking the doors was a terrible idea and something that not only is idiotic, but breaks many health and safety laws. The UK has an unfortunate history of incidents caused by locking people inside places. It's a slight tangent here, but in 1989, the UK experienced its worst stadium disaster, the Hillsborough disaster, when people were trapped against fences because the police wouldn't let them climb over. The result was 96 deaths and 766 injuries. After that accident, a lot of new laws were passed concerning health and safety to avoid this. It even happened in my local area in 1883. 183 children were crushed in a stampede due to locked doors. Those broken spawns I mentioned earlier, caused by the smallest kids being trapped against the doors. The school has since improved dramatically. The old school was demolished and the British government's Building Schools for the Future program funded a new modern building for the students. In the second year, the new school was opened on the same grounds and we were moved over there so that the old school could be demolished. School was much better from that day on. It was safer and much more enjoyable. The parents of the students were so upset with the lack of management and supervision that they demanded change like they've never demanded before. The headmaster at the time resigned and we received the new headmaster, Ken Gibson, in time for the opening of the new building. Within three years, he turned one of the most infamous schools for violence and disorder into a model example that attracted observers from across Europe. In fact, he received a knighthood in 2013 for his services to education. Ryan's new headmaster was knighted by Prince William. So I guess I should be calling him Sir Ken Gibson. Why do I feel a sense of deja vu whenever I hear someone describe a food fight? This image of a kid getting up and yelling, food fight, then throwing food around feels so familiar, even though I've never been in one. It does seem familiar, almost cliche. Is there a way to trace back to how the concept of food fights started? We start by looking at why people throw food. People throw food for two main reasons. First of all, because it's funny. The other reason is to show displeasure. For example, throwing food at a performer or a politician if you don't like their work. Let's talk about the history of throwing food because it's funny. Pieing is the act of throwing a pie at someone. It seems to have started as a vaudeville routine in the 1890s, 
but the history is pretty murky. One source mentioned that the American theater manager, William Hammerstein, might have invented the gag. Better documented is the first pieing in films. The first time pieing was done in films was in the silent film Mr. Flip, released in 1909. Note that physical humor was all important for silent films and pieing was great physical humor. So from that first pieing scene in 1909, we continued to see more and more pieing in movies for years to come. Charlie Chaplin was very popular for years and his films often had pie scenes. Ever see the Three Stooges pie fight in the 1941 short film In the Sweet Pie and Pie? If not, check out our show notes for a link to the pie scene. It is a classic. And throwing a pie into one person's face evolved into something bigger. In the 1965 film, The Great Race, it evolved into a whole pie fight with a room full of people throwing pies at one another. That four minute and 20 second pie fight scene took five days to film. 4,000 pies were thrown, costing 18,000 US dollars on the pies alone. So that's about $4.50 per pie. In total, the scene cost $200,000 to shoot, or equivalent to $1.5 million when converted for today's standards. Eventually, slapstick humor became less and less important. Remember that by the late 1920s, films were starting to come out with sound. The Jazz Singer, the first full feature talkie, came out in 1927, so dialogue could now be used for humor. People could make jokes and make the audience laugh without having to walk funny or fall down or throw a pie in someone's face. So throwing food moved away from adults to kids. Nowadays, we think of kids in cafeterias or freshmen in college throwing food. Remember that epic food fight in National Lampoon's Animal House? often noted as one of the greatest food fights on film. So what about the world's greatest food fights in real life? The biggest food fight in the world is known as La Tomatina. This gigantic mess gets made in Buñol, Spain, in the last Wednesday of every August. I first learned about this famous food fight when I ate at a restaurant by the same name in Walnut Creek, California. The walls have photos of all these people absolutely covered in tomatoes. The entire town is a site of this massive food fight for 20,000 people. Everything is red. The walls, the streets. Seriously, it looks like the air is thick with red mist. Check out the link in our show notes for some images. It first began in 1945. Possibly 1944 or 1945, actually. The sources differ, and there are different stories for how it started. We're going to give you the official story that the organizers support. So, supposedly, back in 1945, some rowdy kids were messing around during a parade. They accidentally knocked someone off the float, who angrily chased them and hit a vegetable cart to the ground. A fight broke out, and everyone started throwing vegetables at each other. The police shut it down, but every year the food fight would happen again, and again, and again. It was banned during the Franco dictatorship, since it is not a religious festival. But the townspeople protested. They organized a funeral procession for a giant tomato in 1957. In 1975, the festival became official and was to be held in honor of the town's patron saints. It is now an entire week-long festival that ends with the giant food fight on the last day. 
At 11 a.m., there is a loud bang, and then it begins. After an hour, the second shot rings, and then it's all over. Okay, so the event is over. So now what happens? I always wondered how big tourist food fight events keep everyone from tracking the mess into their hotel rooms. Now, a town of less than 10,000 people. And by the way, to compare, Yale University has over 12,000 students and the University of British Columbia has over 50,000 students. So 10,000 is a very small population. This town now has maybe 20,000 more people. Tired, hungry people covered head to toe in tomatoes. We found out that people can wash themselves off in the Buñol River or get the locals to hose them down. The neighbors, the citizens, always help to everybody with the water and, and all that. We are very friendly, so everybody can clean. And we prepare special places for flower too. That was Rafael Perez, the man behind La Tomatina. More from him later. Okay, so there are three ways to clean yourself off after the event the river, the locals, and the public showers they set up in the town center. And what about the streets? That's the sound of fire trucks. The town brings in fire trucks carrying water they get from a Roman aqueduct, and they spray down the streets. What's really interesting is that because tomatoes are acidic, that actually helps to clean the streets. So once you rinse it off, It's all good. Within one hour after the event is over, the town center is entirely clean. And the rest of the town is cleaned within four to five hours. Only in in one hour, all is clean, all is uh, ready because in the evening, the party continue. Uh, Later in, in, in other part of Buñol, well, we have more time for clean. But in four, five hours, all is, all is ready, all is clean. Oh, and before you complain about the waste of food, they only use rotten tomatoes that are not fit for human consumption. We buy into a special factory. It's quite difficult to buy. Uh, for example, the, the same tomato that we throw, the, this tomato can't eat. It's forbidden, not healthy for it. So we have to buy to a special factory who is making especially for, for tomatina. The tomatoes are ordered from a special factory. Because all of the money spent on the event must be transparent, Mr. Perez had no problem letting us know how much was spent on tomatoes this year. 50,000 euros on a total of 125,000 tons of tomatoes. Things actually used to be crazier. They only started limiting the event to 20,000 people two years ago in 2013. Before 2013, they had around 45,000 people coming in to participate. And remember that it's a small town with normally less than 10,000 people. So if you want to go this year, you'll need to go online and buy a ticket to be one of the 20,000 people that get to participate. I think it's roughly 10 euros a ticket, and it's going to be on August 26th this year. In past years, they've had 11 ambulances, a nursing facility installed at City Hall, 13 doctors, and an emergency helicopter to make sure people could get help for injuries. Very few people actually get hurt. In one year, there were seven people who needed stitches for their cuts and one person who had heat stroke. Here are some tips for people that are planning on going. First, wear clothes that you can throw away later as you will never, ever get them clean again. Second, make sure you take a change of clothes for the return bus journey. There are some public showers near the river, but they will not let you get on the bus in dirty clothes. Third, 
Bring goggles or protect your eyes, but do not wear glasses. The acidic tomato juice on your eyes could be really painful. And fourth, finally, wear shoes that have a decent grip. Maybe the only place where wearing Crocs in public would be considered a good thing. There are some rules for the event. No bringing in bottles or anything that can be used to injure others if thrown. You also have to squish each tomato before you throw it so they don't hurt anyone. Finally, when the second shot sounds, everyone has to stop. We spoke to Rafael Perez, the sole organizer for La Tomatina. I am the uh, organizer, I am the, the boss, I am the second mayor of, of my village, of Buñol, and I am the only person who is working in Tomatina. Wow, you look very young in your pictures, so that's very impressive. <laughs> well, I have 28 years old. I made the first Tomatina with 24 years old. In 1945 is when I started the first Tomatina. We are in, in celebration because the year is the 70th birthday of Tomatina. What is involved in preparing for such a big event? Well, we, we prepare all. For us, the security is the most important. They are working near to 500 persons in the civil police, uh, military police. It's more than, than 500 persons working in security. In the, in the last thing, we have to speak with uh, neighbors because Tomatina is in the center of village where is living many, many people. So we have to try to don't be uh, a lot angry the, the, the citizens, the neighbors. So I think this is the, the most difficult thing to prepare the Tomatina. Also named La Tomatina and inspired by the one in Buñol, Spain, this annual food fight occurs in Sudamarcan, Colombia. It celebrates the importance of tomato crops for the area. This one began in 2004 and is much smaller, with hundreds of locals and tourists instead of thousands like the one back in Spain. Everyone gathers on a soccer field for the food fight that usually takes place in mid-June. I thought it was so funny to see them using fire truck hoses which had obviously been turned down to a low pressure, to rinse everyone off afterwards. There is a link to a Telegraph article and video of it in our show notes. This festival lasts three days and includes a tomato eating contest and a competition for the largest tomato. Only tomatoes not fit for human consumption are used for the food fight, though. There are even pools of tomatoes that people can splash around in. Looking to get in a tomato fight without flying overseas? There are a number of La Tomatina-esque events in the USA. We have a link in our show notes for a resource to help you find the one closest to you and a description of last year's various tomato-throwing festivals. Warning, many festivals rotate around, so just because they were in your area last year does not mean they will be hosted there again this year. A group trying to get this event in Seattle is also trying to bring tomato fights to major cities throughout the U.S. The final food fight event we will be discussing also involves tomatoes being thrown, but it was not actually based on La Tomatina. Instead, it has a hilarious story that is rooted in animosity between Coloradans and tourists from Texas. It was called the Colorado-Texas Tomato War, and it happened annually in Twin Lakes, Colorado. Local hotel owner Taylor Adams started the tradition in 1982, and it ran uninterrupted for just over a decade. She did it in response to Texan tourists always, quote-unquote, throwing their dollars around. 
Rumor has it that when one such tourist said, this is such a pretty area, it's a shame nobody's done anything with it, she wanted to pelt the Texan with rotten fruit, and thus the idea for the war was born. This is believed to be the event that sparked a popular bumper sticker in the area that said, keep Colorado beautiful, put a Texan on a bus. According to the Gazette, most of the time, the Texans were outnumbered, and in 1987, the Coloradans were able to easily overrun the makeshift base called Tamalamo. One year, though, a large group of Texans showed up with their jeeps covered in paper mache so they looked like tanks. Some participants even parachuted onto the battlefield. Any of the casualties during these events were tended to by battlefield medics who carried Bloody Marys for medication. Over time, the event became less about Colorado versus Texas, and really just became a last man standing sort of war. The event was eventually canceled due to concerns over property owners' liability and ability to keep insurance coverage. In 2011, they brought it back with 2,000 attendees at the Copper Mountain Ski Resort. Its name was shortened to Colorado Tomato War, and it was not a competitive event at all. No one used cutthroat strategy to take down their opponents or overrun Tamalamo as in years past. Where a splat anywhere on a torso was once considered a kill, and the last person left standing was the winner, in 2011 they just played until the tomatoes ran out. It looks like there are some efforts to try and get this event to happen again annually, but nothing has been announced yet. All right, food buffs, thanks for listening to this week's episode. We know there are a lot of other amazing food fights out there. We'll likely cover some others in the future if we get feedback from you, our listeners, that you are interested. Yeah, so if there's a particular food fight that you think we should definitely include, please write to us at feedback at foodnonfiction.com. We are slowly moving to a Tuesday release date, so you can expect our next episode to air on Monday, May 18th. Oh, and one more point. We just got food nonfiction magnets so if you would be so kind as to write us a review let us know through email at feedback at foodnonfiction.com that you've written us a review and leave your address and we'll mail you a food nonfiction magnet